Hey, I'm Connor Gillies, producer for Jacobin Radio. I wanted to let everyone know we're offering a special solidarity rate on magazine subscriptions today for just $1 by going to bit.ly, B-I-T L-Y slash MaydayMag. You're probably familiar with our Democratic Socialist commentary online, but we also publish a beautiful quarterly print magazine that funds our important work. The latest issue of Jacobin was just released this week, and it features over 150 pages from academics, journalists, and activists looking at ruling classes, past and present, and the classic question, who owns our so-called democracies? So please visit bit.ly slash maydaymag and become a subscriber if you haven't already. It's just $1 all weekend for May Day, and we'll put a link in the description as well. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. It's now more than a year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 to be a global pandemic. In multiple ways, the world has become a very different place. But the climate crisis still casts a long shadow over global politics. We're still haunted by the prospect of ecological breakdown. As NBC pointed out in broadcast at the end of last year, 2020 was a year of climate extremes. People are telling us this is the worst they've ever seen. Fires have burned more intensely, more ferociously. They seem to have a mind of their own. Satellite imagery is showing that Arctic sea ice is at its lowest levels on record. In northern Siberia, it hit 100.4 degrees. We are looking right now at the all-time record heat for the month of June. A catastrophic Category 4 hurricane bearing down in the U.S. We could be looking at a majority of the surrounding communities flooded with upwards of 9 to 20 feet of water. The two largest wildfires in Colorado history are burning dangerously close, just miles apart. On the heels of what has been a historic and deadly wildfire season, the winds standing these flames are expected to last another 24 hours. Friends' homes are on fire and you're watching it with your eyes. And it is officially the busiest hurricane season ever on record. Our guest today is Thea Rio Francos. Thea teaches political science at Providence College and she's the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. I began by asking her about early hopes that the pandemic lockdown might have a silver lining for climate change and what's actually happened over the last 12 months. Right, you're kind of um, making me think of that meme that that went pretty viral in the early pandemic days of nature is healing like this kind of idea that with humans restricting or restricting their you know, economic activity, that nature was just going to heal and, and, and everything on all the problems of the climate crisis and the broader crisis of ecological devastation would be solved. But we're seeing that that's not the case. And there was not really actually a reason to think that it would be the case. It is true that 2020, last year, there was a record drop in emissions of 7%. That drop was not nearly enough to get us anywhere on track to a path to climate safety, first and foremost. 
In addition, as soon as economic activity resumed, which it did, as we now know, much too early in many parts of the world, right? So governments pressured by by economic motives and for other reasons, undid restrictions that needed to be in place for longer for public health reasons. And so as soon as economic uh, activity resumed, as it did in an uneven way across the world, emissions went back up, right? And so now at this point, it's almost like that that 7% drop never happened, right? And so I think that that gives us a sense that a lockdown is not a climate policy, first and foremost. And, and I don't think any climate scientist or climate activist has ever said in order to deal with the climate crisis, we need to restrict people to their homes. I mean, that would be not only um, a, an unscientific, but an incredibly unpopular kind of uh, climate policy. So there's no reason we should have expected the the lockdown to address the climate crisis. That's not what it was meant to do. It was meant to address a public health crisis. I think it is interesting to look at, though, um, and there are there are lessons to learn about why the um, emissions dropped so so rapidly last year, albeit you know quite temporarily. And we saw a tremendous reduction in global travel and in aviation. And we secondarily saw a reduction in uh, in surface travel and in commuting, right? Or in people commuting and people driving for vacation or, or pleasure or whatever it is. And so those were the places where we saw the biggest drop. I think it's worth mentioning, in case listeners aren't aware, that aviation is extremely unequal and like affluent skewed form of transportation. Very few people in the world fly of those people. Very few people fly regularly. And so there's a very high correlation between class and and flying, right? And so I think that's interesting to keep in mind when we move forward and reevaluate our, our, our transit policies in general in the wake of the pandemic. And so, yeah, it basically, we had a reduction in travel that reduced the emissions. We actually had increases in other forms of emissions, and this shouldn't be surprising. They didn't offset the reduction in travel, but things like uh, electricity and heating and gas you know, use in, in people's domestic context increased because people were, were at home, right? And so what we got was a decrease in some categories and a shifting around in a way of other forms of, of energy use from places of work to where people live. The left in the US mobilised in recent years around Bernie Sanders in particular, who put forward a plan for ecological transformation in the country that has been the world's major source of carbon emissions. Before talking about the ultimate defeat of Bernie Sanders and his campaign, could you talk a little about the content of his ecological programme? It may have been quite radical in terms of what came before in mainstream politics, but was it radical enough in terms of the objective scale of the crisis? So I think that it's impossible to understand why Bernie had such an ambitious climate plan, which was a Green New Deal policy explicitly framed in those terms that would spend $16.3 trillion of public money to address head on the crisis of of global warming um, and, and of other types of environmental devastation and do so in a way as per the Green New Deal's approach, would do so in a way that uplifted ordinary people's economic and material circumstances, right? And so why did he have such an ambitious plan? And, you know, I think you could absolutely say it's not ambitious enough, right? Because the climate crisis is very dire. And and I think it's challenging to get policy to get to the exact scale of the crisis. But his plan was ambitious, and it was more ambitious 
by far than any of the plans of, of the other primary candidates or than any previous Democratic candidate's plan. And so the question is, why was it so ambitious and, and multifaceted? And I think that that speaks to years of social mobilization around climate justice and environmental justice. And it more approximately speaks to a couple years prior to his campaign of mobilizing for a Green New Deal, right? So this, you know, Milton Friedman had this phrase about ideas lying around. Of course, he was talking about neoliberal ideas lying around, uh, you know, for a moment of crisis for right-wing governments to implement them. But the Green New Deal was an idea lying around. It was something that had previously been articulated by movements and heterodox policymakers. It had also gotten some specific legislative form by the resolution of of, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and Senator Markey, um, the congressional resolution in, in early 2019. Our movement towards a sustainable future has been divided with really just this false notion that we have to choose between our planet and our economy. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez relaunched her push for a Green New Deal in April of this year. 20 million union jobs in the United States of America to rebuild our infrastructure, to restore public housing, to make sure that we expand our access not only to EV and EV infrastructure, but mass transit. Everything from coast-to-coast chargers to making sure that we have an Amtrak, uh, a resilient Amtrak infrastructure to the New York City subway system. And then there was, I should say, a whole set of social mobilizations, in particular led by the Sunrise Movement, but with lots of other groups involved as well, pushing for this in a quite dramatic manner, occupying the offices of Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, hound-dogging policymakers whenever they gave public appearances, right? Giving some Democratic candidates an F grade, you know, on their stance on fossil fuels, you know, being quite militant about about the scale of the crisis and what government needed to do. And, And all of that happened prior to the primaries and then continued to unfold during the primaries. So Bernie was really, I think, responding to and absorbing a set of social movement and progressive policy ideas that already existed. And, and I think that explains the scale and the ambition of, of, of his climate policy. And then I'll just note that the ambition of his policy had had downstream effects. And a major one of them was making Biden's policy when the general election commenced much, much better, not nearly good enough, uh, but much, much better than it was when Biden was in the primary or than any other previous you know, time that Biden had run or when Biden was in the Obama administration or anything like that. So Biden himself improved you know, compared to his low baseline, quite a bit on climate, I think as a result of those movements, that pressure, and as a result of Bernie putting forward the best plan of, of all of the primary candidates. What do you think the defeat of the American left that was mobilised around the Sanders campaign in the course of the 2020 primaries tells us about the prospects for the Green New Deal and other left-wing ecological programmes? I think that it tells us that we are rarely going to fight for what we need, what we deserve, and what the climate science tells us is absolutely necessary under conditions of our own choosing. We are not going to fight in circumstances where we have our best ally in the White House, where we have the most progressive overall caucus, you know, elected to Congress and on the on the part of the Democrats, where every governor and mayor is equally committed to this, right? We're going to 
organize under conditions that are imperfect, right? And one of those key, you know, imperfections right now is that we have a a centrist instead of a self-identified democratic socialist in the White House, right? Um, And that most members of Congress, democratic senators and representatives are are really not with us um, at all. A, A minority of them are. But I don't think that the fact that conditions are imperfect should get us down too much because those imperfect conditions, as I've already suggested, are themselves artifacts of history and we are protagonists in history. So we have actually shaped the current conditions to be better than they would have been than if we had not fought to elect Bernie, than if we had not you know, organized the largest socialist movement in, uh, in generations, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, if we had not you know, had the Sunrise movement, you know, explode in terms of its membership and political impact, right? So I think that the fact that we don't have everything that we want or every, you know, perfect person in power should not deter us. You know, if our theory of power, our theory of change is that it is collective grassroots agency and leverage that forces policymakers, bosses, landlords, whoever it is, to do what we want them to do and what we deserve, then we're never kind of waiting around and expecting for the perfect person to be in power so that we can sit back, right? The idea is that pressure from below is always going to be necessary. That actually would have been true with Bernie too. Um, it's more true with someone like Biden. But I, I don't think that, you know, the climate crisis is not like stopping while we figure out like the cor- perfect political conditions in the US, right? It's it, it demands that we act now. And I want to say that the conditions are actually better than I expected because I didn't know that movements and Bernie's role in the primary and how well he actually did was going to shape the politics of the current administration and Congress as much as they have. And I will just note, we have a couple more socialists in Congress right now. And that was not something I expected. We have Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman, in addition to the previous squad that you know was in power uh, as of the past session. It's easy to forget, perhaps, after the events of the last year, but 2019 saw a huge international mobilisation by predominantly young people around the climate crisis that was coinciding with high profile stories about the impact of climate change on places like Australia and California. What do you think the lasting impact of that mobilisation has been? I want to actually add another mobilisation and try to answer them maybe both together, which is something else that I would not have have expected, especially earlier in the pandemic, which was the largest social movement uprising that the U.S. has ever seen in terms of sheer numbers and geographic spread, uh, which was the uprising against police violence in the wake of the murder of George Floyd this past summer. And so that's about a a year after the the uprisings that you're talking about, which were directly climate related. But I think both of these show us something. They show that um, against all odds, in a way, we live in a thoroughly atomized society, you know, suffer from severe political alienation, lots of forms of collective power, especially unions are, you know, at all time lows in the US and and elsewhere. Um, But despite that, those impediments to political mobilization and engagement, young people, especially, but also not just young people, but especially young, younger generations are, um, you know, ready to come out to the streets when there is an a clear injustice, when there is something that directly affects them, when there is something that, um, you know, like the climate crisis does, like police violence do, um, when there's also a generalized sentiment of, of discontent, of economic immiseration, of, of political discontent, of lack of faith in institutions, we actually can get people to mobilize in great numbers. And so that's a good thing. The challenge, though, as your question is suggesting, the challenge is 
how do we give those mobilizations? Sometimes they're more planned, sometimes they're more spontaneous, but they're ephemeral. They're sort of demarcated in time. How do we give those a more enduring organizational vehicle that can continue to put pressure on policymakers, on on the ruling class, um, on elites in general, like beyond moments of 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 uprising, right? And I think that's the challenge that the American left is 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 facing right now. And I, you know, there are all sorts of examples that we could give of ways that people are getting organized. There's been a big rise in, for example, tenants unions organizing, right? There's been the rise in DSA and Sunrise that I already mentioned. Right now in, in DSA, we are fighting alongside others in the labor and climate movement to pass a sweeping piece of labor legislation that would actually remove the obstacles that exist to people unionizing, right? So if we could get a bunch more unions uh, in existence, that would also be great for, for working class political agency. So, you know, I think that basically, you know, to sum up what this teaches us is that both uprising, um, spontaneous outrage, people filling the streets, militant and direct tactics are, are, are necessary. They help politicize masses of people very quickly. But the other piece of that of organization, of, of enduring uh, uh, groups that can you know, train people in leadership skills and, and, and mobilize them at other moments are also necessary. And we're kind of look, witnessing that dialectic between mobilization and, and organization and hoping to fill out, I think, more of the organization piece of that. If we talk about the environmental mobilisations of recent years in Europe and North America, whether that means the climate strikes or the party political interventions from the left, do you think there's been enough attention paid to the international aspects of the climate crisis and especially what it means for countries in the global south? I think that the answer to this is no. And so this is probably my first time being a little less optimistic thus far in this podcast. Uh, There has not been enough attention. I just say that point blank. And there's actually kind of an interesting and an odd history of this that I haven't gotten a full handle on. But several years ago in the in the climate justice movement in the U.S., um, when that movement was, you know, kind of earlier in its infancy, there was actually much more attention. It That movement, I think, more explicitly self-identified as part of a global climate justice movement, and it attended to questions of climate inequality, climate apartheid, climate debt, right? The climate reparations owed the global South, right? And it, it used language like that that was internationalist in its character and that understood that both the climate crisis and capitalism are planetary in scale, and we need to kind of address both of these simultaneously. And it also understood, as is obviously the case, that the front lines of the climate crisis are are everywhere in the world, right? But they are particularly in the global south. The people that are most vulnerable to the climate crisis are the least responsible for the climate crisis and also are the least resilient to it, meaning like have the least resources to survive the climate crisis and 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 also flourish in 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 our changing world. So that kind of basic analysis was much more common on uh, in the climate justice movement in the U.S. several years ago than it than it seems to be now, and I I can't quite account for that. I think there, it's part of a longer durée history of the decline of internationalism in the United States, um, which is in part due to government actual government repression of, of movements that were internationalist in character. Uh, but I think that there are other causes that are yet to be fully understood as well. You know, so that being said, uh, I increasingly in my own work, uh, you know, in events and in my writing and, and, and in my kind of public output, I try to emphasize this because I, I don't think it's emphasized enough that, and, and one of the ways I like to put it is that there is no way to deal with the global climate crisis without dealing with, for example, the debt crisis, right? That 
global South countries and governments are strapped economically in unsustainable and illegitimate levels of debt that give them very little fiscal room to maneuver to invest in in both like climate investments and climate resiliency and renewable energy, also in public health investments, as we're seeing right now with the with the pandemic. And they also often force those governments to make difficult choices and promote more short term economic thinking, promote, you know, uh, economic sectors such as resource extraction over economic sectors that would be better for the environment and, and more stable kind of economically and socially. And so I think that, you know, we have to make those connections between debt, between climate, between global justice, and not just focus kind of inwardly on, on, on the domestic scale. It's fairly common for climate activists in Europe and North America to stress the moral obligation that we owe to the people in the global south who will be at the sharp end of the climate crisis. But what do you think those activists should be learning themselves from climate movements in those countries? Yeah, I love this question because I do think that oftentimes, you know, when US-based activists think internationally, they often think in that first direction, right? If they think internationally at all, <laughs> they often think, you know, what does the global north owe the global south, which is a, they should think that way. But there's another side to that, which is what can the global north learn from the global south in terms of everything from political tactics of of grassroots and popular movements to innovative policies on the part of left-wing governments at multiple scales of governance in, you know, from Kerala, you know, a subnational state in, in, in India to left-wing governments in, in Latin America that experimented with lots of, of innovative social and economic uh, policies, right? So I think that bi-directionality is, is really important. Um, so one of the things that, that I've learned is in my own work, which has focused a lot on Latin America and specifically on the tense and fraught politics of resource extraction in the context of left-wing governments, right? And so the, this moment for the first decade and a half of this millennium in which there was a commodity boom globally pushing and incentivizing more extraction due to high prices of oil and soy and beef and, and minerals, at the same time that a bunch of new left-wing governments from Chavez to Morales to to Korea and Kirchner and, and others had gotten elected around the region. And so this was a very interesting political and economic context in which there were left-wing governments in power with the economic resources to actually live up to their political campaign promises, right, which was more social spending above all. And what, what that did was, on the one hand, improve people's material circumstances, right, and shows what can be done when the left is in power and the left has fiscal resources, right? And so I think that, that there's real interesting lessons and what other types of fiscal resources might be better than, than uh, extractive resource rents, you know, of course, would be taxation of, of the wealthy and, 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 and things like that. So I think there's interesting lessons there. But then, you know, there's interesting lessons in terms of social movements. In the case that I studied, particularly Ecuador, though this happened elsewhere in the region, movements uh, became very militant about extraction. They did not just kind of like sit back and say, okay, we have the left in power. We're, you know, there's some redistribution of resource rents happening. We're cool. Instead, they actually really zoomed in on what they saw as the main source of ecological crisis, of um, the violations of indigenous rights, of territorial dispossession, which was this extractive model of development that had really been in place since the conquest of the Americas, right, so for, for over 500 years. And so these movements took it upon themselves to kind of fulfill this task of history, which was to you know, really dismantle colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, and its you know links to to the ecological crisis. And so I think you know what I've learned from them is that 
movements can, you know, even movements of people that are the most marginalized, right? So we're talking about indigenous communities in rural peripheries, um, in the Amazon, in the Andean region that um, are face double forms of class and, and ethnic marginalization, that they, despite those, you know, obstacles to, to political power, were able in some cases to stall extractive projects, oil projects and mining, large scale mining projects that the government and foreign corporations were avidly promoting and sometimes defending with state repression. Um, and that despite those obstacles, they were able to stall and slow down the extractive model of development and in some cases stop certain projects, particularly contentious projects altogether. And so I think in the global north, we can learn from that, from that militancy, from those tactics that were used just as much as, of course, we can learn from similar episodes of contention here in the United States, like, like that of Standing Rock, for example, right? So I think that there is a lot, a lot to learn. Um, and I'd also just end by saying that I think that, that we should, um, think at the scale, um, both globally, but also the scale of the Americas, think in hemispheric terms and what it would take for a hemispheric transition to a green and socially just economy, because that can't be done in Ecuador alone. And Ecuador, you know, the Ecuadorian left-wing government learned that lesson in, in various ways. Like you can't just in a small country uh, in the peripheries of the global economy transition to a post-extractive model of development, even as movements were, were pushing for that. You need action at, at other scales, regional and global, in order to make that economically viable. You co-authored a piece for Jacobin in the spring of last year with a concise headline, We Can Waste Another Crisis or We Can Transform the Economy. Can you identify any moves in the right direction that have happened since then, despite the apparent marginalisation of the left? Yeah. And so, you know, we wrote that piece months before the uprising uh, in response to the murder of, of, of George Floyd and, and around racial justice and against police violence that I mentioned earlier in the interview. So months later, there actually was this, you know, unforeseeable, um, you know, from our vantage point, huge political opening, um, moment of radicalization and moment of mass politics. Right. And so I think that you know, first of all, what 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 we've seen is that uh, despite the strictures of the pandemic, people are ready to take part in mass action and in, in political action, and that should make us feel positive about our ongoing work to to organize. But let me answer your question a little bit more directly, um, which is uh, what what positive results there have been of this ongoing form of sort of left-wing mobilization despite, uh, or I shouldn't say despite, but in the moment or in the context of a crisis that's on the one hand a public health crisis and on the other hand, and relatedly an economic crisis. And I think that what we've seen in this $1.9 trillion of, of stimulus is that various popular demands, oftentimes articulated through movements, have made an impact, right? And I know this is divisive on the left because a lot of leftists have focused rightfully on what didn't get included in the stimulus, right? There wasn't the $15 an hour minimum wage federally mandated. There wasn't a host of other provisions that movements and and, and also progressive policymakers were, were pushing for. But I don't think we should let those real defeats distract us or dilute the fact that this was a very large stimulus that had provisions, whether it was for, um, you know, specific forms of federal aid for black farmers, right? 
forms of federal aid for um, um, tribes and indigenous nations, right? You know, extension of, of unemployment insurance, um, uh, funding for schools and vaccination and all sorts of things, right? Um, a direct stimulus check to people. Yes, it wasn't the $2,000, but it's not nothing, right? And so I think we should recognize in the provisions of the bill, various demands that have been articulated forcefully through protests, through pressure campaigns, through the social media, even, and, and, and all sorts of venues. And I think that we should recognize our success in that bill and feel emboldened to fight for more rather than look at what isn't there and feel defeated. And that sort of posture of nihilism, I think, is really self-undermining in terms of our political power. Rather, I think we should claim victories at the same time that we point out deficits in a way that makes us feel energized to fight for the next round of stimulus, which, by the way, will focus on infrastructure and have a, and have a climate component uh, in that focus. President Biden opened the Leaders' Summit on Climate with the announcement of a new target for the U.S., a 50 to 52 percent reduction from 2005 levels of greenhouse gas pollution by 2030. Joe Biden recently pledged to cut U.S. carbon emissions by 50 percent over the course of this decade, as CNBC reported. The health of communities throughout the world depends on it. The well-being of our workers depends on it. The strength of our economies depends on it. Countries that take decisive action now to create the industries of the future will be the ones that reap the economic benefits of the clean energy boom that's coming. Climate scientist Michael Mann told PBS that Biden's executive orders would have to be combined with congressional legislation. If we are to wean ourselves from coal and natural gas and oil, essentially within a decade, we are going to need policies that incentivize that shift. We need to put a price on carbon. We need to provide massive subsidies for renewable energy. We need to block the, the development of additional fossil fuel infrastructure. These are all things that the Biden plan supports. But again, we need to codify that in terms of legislation if we're going to accomplish that. The Biden administration has now pushed through a stimulus package worth almost $2 trillion to the surprise of many people. How would you evaluate the climate and environmental components of that package? And how would you assess Biden's climate orientation in general? There was barely anything climate related in that bill, even with a very expansive understanding of what counts as climate, right? I think that, you know, the one thing I might say, and this is something that we argue in A Planet to Win and that my um, collaborator, uh, Alyssa Battistoni, has written a lot about, is that we should absolutely see care work, so-called pink collar jobs in the healthcare industry, elder care, um, child care, et cetera, as green jobs um, because they are low carbon and because they focus on care rather than the production of material goods, right? And so I think they're inherently better for the planet and for people's well-being. So I think, you know, that would maybe be one exception to what I was saying, because there's quite a bit of money in the stimulus that is directly about public health and about supporting, you know, the type of care work that, that we need to, to heal from the pandemic and, and, and be healthier moving forward. But aside from that, there was really nothing climate related in, in, in the bill. And that was a conscious choice on the part of Biden, on the part of legislators to not do pick multiple battles at once. I'm not going to comment on whether that was a smart choice or not, but it was definitely a tactical choice that they made. And what that means is that it's the next big spending bill, which will focus on infrastructure, where the real fights over climate will happen. Because infrastructure, our built environment, the way that we you know, structure our transportation system, our energy grid, all sorts of directly climate infrastructure you know, on, our, on our coasts and forms of resiliency, our building stock, all of that infrastructure 
is very related to the climate crisis, right? It can either be infrastructure that promotes, uh, you know, driving to work and uh, using fossil fuels as our form of, of energy and having long commutes between where we live and where we work, right? All of those types of the way that our society is designed that makes the climate crisis worse, or it can be infrastructure that supports renewable energy generation and distribution that helps retrofit buildings to make them greener, more energy efficient, and more resilient against extreme weather. So it can either put us on, you know, reproduce fossil capitalism or put us on a path to green recovery. This moment of tremendous public investment, an unusual moment of a lot of public investment in an otherwise, you know, very neoliberal society in which we do very little public investment, is a moment to use that public investment to not recover in the usual way. The usual kind of economic recovery after an economic crash, and we saw this very clearly in the in 2009, is one that actually spikes emissions, right? Because all you're trying to do is stimulate GDP, not change anything about the underlying structural conditions, and you generate a bunch of emissions as economic activity returns, which is exactly what has already happened with the pandemic, as we discussed earlier. Um, whereas I, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity here to to push through an infrastructure bill that is green and that is socially just, that creates lots of unionized jobs in the buildings, trades, and, and elsewhere, and that puts us on a really different path to a different kind of economic paradigm. Um, but that's going to be a hard fight. We'll need a lot of pressure uh, from, from lots of different social groups in order to make that a reality, because right now it, it, it seems like there's a sense among the political establishment that this bill could maybe be more bipartisan than the economic stimulus, which has zero Republican votes, and because supposedly Republicans like infrastructure, but they like the wrong kind of infrastructure, right? We have to make this a partisan fight and a, and a moment for mass social pressure as well. In a piece for the New York Times last August 2020, you said you'd never been more optimistic about the left's power to shape the terms of debate at any point over the past two decades. Is that still your view today? It is still my view, and I hope it doesn't sound, you know, hokey or, or uh, sentimental or annoying in any way, but it is still my view. And that view is primarily shaped not only by like a response to contemporary politics and conditions, but by my own life trajectory, right? So this is grounded in the fact that, um, um, so uh, I'm, I'm a little bit older than when I wrote that, <laughs> that, um, that article. I'm, uh, I'm now 37, and I've been involved now over two decades in, in the left in various ways, right? And I've changed my own political outlook at various junctures, right? And so when I think about what is the position of the left today? I think that there's a real tendency because of the way that, you know, I think humans tend to like focus a lot on their immediate present, right? So there's sort of presentism in our analyses oftentimes. And what we do is we look at the snapshot of the current moment and we evaluate the uh, balance of forces. And we say the left is not as powerful as the right. And it's like, okay, so the left is weak. But I think we should analyze politics historically rather than just conjuncturally, right? And think, over time, how those conjunctures have have shifted at various moments. And, you know, there's just absolutely no doubt in my mind, not a shred of doubt, that in, you know, the, the late 1990s, when I first got involved in left politics, the left was much more marginal. I would say it was basically like a subculture. This was in the wake of tremendous state repression of left-wing um, and radical movements in the 1970s and, and, and 1980s, right? And so and starting in the 60s, I should say, and through the 1980s. So there was a lot of state repression. There was a lot of demobilization. There was neoliberal hegemony, Reagan, Clinton, et cetera. I mean, it was like weird to be a leftist, an anti-capitalist, a radical. And now it's like trendy almost, which has its own 
challenges, right? I think the fact that like Zoomers, you know, i.e. the generation below me are, are like, you know, more likely to be leftists is great. But also I think, you know, that probably means there's also a lot of political education needed about history, about the global conjuncture. Um, there is, you know, organizations needed to, to sort of absorb and channel those, those, you know, young budding leftists, right? So there's, there's challenges posed by more people identifying as left wing, but it's certainly better for your ideas to be more popular than for them to be less popular. It's better for words like socialism to be used in the halls of Congress because they're actual socialists in the halls of Congress, right? Not just as like an invented figure, but there's like literally socialists that have been elected, right? And we literally have, you know, a, a tens of thousands of members strong, um, I forget the current amount, if it's 85,000 or 90,000 members strong Democratic Socialists of America, right? So we're in a totally different ballgame. And I think with, with some increase to our collective power, comes, you know, sort of, I don't want to say comes responsibility, but comes new challenges of strategic thinking. Like, how do we actually orient to the state? How do we orient to the Democratic Party? What is our power to win in a context where unions have been decimated? We have to, like, think about these questions much more seriously in a way than we did when we were actually much politically weaker and marginalized. But I'd rather have those challenges than the challenges of, you know, complete political marginalization and, and invisibility. Many thanks to Theo Rio Francos for that discussion of climate politics after the pandemic. If you'd like to know more about her ideas on eco-socialism and the Green New Deal, you can find links to some of the articles she's written for Jacobin in the page for this episode. <laughs>